Hi, I'm Carmen LaBerge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LaBerge. Encouraging you to live as an ambassador of God's kingdom in the world. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. All right, so in this week of the 4th of July, when we reflect on who we are as one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all, there are a number of headlines, a number of directions that we could go in the conversations of the day. Um, You can easily get God back into the conversation, uh, no matter what the conversation is. And so we just want to encourage you to consider that and do that and look for those opportunities. Every conversation can be reframed um, from an eternal perspective. Like you can bring the eternal to bear on the everyday in the conversations that you have today. And I'm going to encourage you to look for those opportunities. Look for look for the soul words. Look for um, biblical illusions um, in the in the cultural conversations. Look for references to Good Samaritans. Um, when some politician talks about the soul of the nation, hmm, that's a that's just a wide open door. That's an invitation for you uh, to talk about what it means to be a person with a soul um, and how that soul is formed and informed and reformed and transformed, and then who we are as agents of grace and ministers of reconciliation in the culture of which we are a part. So you can either sow seeds of peace today or you can sow seeds of division. And as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, um, you have a calling and a commission and a spirit and a mind that is intended to be aligned with Christ. And so let me encourage you uh, in that way today. Um, I am reading a number of headlines right now in relationship to churches across the country and the challenges that they are facing um, as as different states apply different rules and regulations in terms of reopening and coronavirus restrictions. And so there was a recent court ruling in the state of New York um, where uh, where indoor religious gatherings were limited to a 25 percent capacity. Uh, even though other uh, other indoor activities are, are limited to a 50 percent capacity. Um, however, casinos in New York have been allowed to reopen with less restrictions than churches in, in Nevada. Uh, and we have a federal judge in California upholding a city's policy preventing a church from using the first floor of their building as a worship center. And so I just think that you need to be aware of and mindful of what is happening and that different rules apply in different states right now. And so what's happening where you live? What's happening with your local congregation? I'd love an update from uh, from where you where you live and what's happening with your church and your congregation. Um, how are you regathering? What's happening um, in terms of standards being applied differently to churches where you live uh, and other religious gatherings? Um, you know, how are those different than the rules being applied uh, or the laws being applied to other industries, you know, are are there, you know, drive through liquor stores open, but they won't let you do, uh, you know, cars in a parking lot at a church. You, you get you get the point here. I'd like some uh, 
some frontline uh, response to that. So you can text me at 877-933-2484. You can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. Uh, if you send me a link to an article, that is always greatly appreciated because then I can uh, I can do the research myself. All right. Adam Carrington from Hillsdale College is rejoining us again this morning because the Supreme Court has continued to um, to release rulings. And so they have released their ruling in the Montana case related. It's called the Espinosa case. And it's related to um, school choice and the funding of Christian schools through tax vouchers. So that conversation up next here on Mornings with Carmen. All right, Adam Adam Carrington is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He tweets at Carrington AM, and he's rejoining us this morning after a tea party with his daughter to talk about school choice and the action of the Supreme Court of the United States in the Espinoza case. There you go, Adam. That's I've, I've set the ball on the tee. Oh, thank you. And and my daughter doesn't care that much about the Supreme Court. So I, I, I you all hopefully will be not quite as tough an audience. Uh, <laughs> yes, that that uh, it was it was a big. Uh, uh, a big decision, uh, and 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 the news seems more mixed from the court compared to last week, and that's a good thing. And I think that this this case, which had to do with uh, a Montana program that offered tax credits to uh, people who donated scholarship money to students to go to private schools, so you donate the money to uh, to. Uh, 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 scholarships for students to go to these schools, and you get a dollar for dollar up to a certain amount tax credit from Montana. And uh, the problem, the, the question was, can these go to religious schools? And um, the court said yes in a five to four decision. And I think that if if you get down to what it means and how they reasoned, uh, it really is on uh, on one hand a win for school choice. Uh, having uh, greater uh, choices, especially for low-income uh, uh, families who are looking for other alternatives than maybe the the, the public school near them. Uh, it's a win, I think, for religious liberty. It really affirms in a pretty robust way that um, if the government offers a benefit or if the government is going to treat people uh, a cer- according to a certain standard, that those who are religious organizations or individuals should get equal treatment to those who are not um, the same treatment. And I think it's even a small win for religion's place in public life. If you look at one of the uh, concurring opinions written by um, uh, Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Gorsuch, it even wants to go further in affirming uh, that this is good for society to help uh, students go to religious schools because of what that might do for 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 uh, cultivating citizenship and 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 better human beings so um uh, really i think um a pretty good uh, a step in the right direction here with this ruling i always think it's helpful adam to remind people how we got uh to this place the reason that we are having this conversation today is because back in the day, Protestant Christians didn't want Catholics to be able to educate their kids 
um, in expressly Catholic schools. And so I just think that we we need to be mindful that when we make laws um, prohibiting the religious practice practice of some who maybe we we don't like the way they think about things, um, ultimately it can come back to bite us. And so those those hinges of the law swing both ways. So this will um, this will assist parents of kids who want of who want to send their children to um, schools that teach Islamic you know, a particular Islamic approach to education or Jewish or Catholic or Protestant. And what it's basically saying is um, the the state is not going to say that we prefer a secular humanist educational approach to a an expressly religious approach that parents um, have the right to send their children to be educated in whatever schools they so choose. And we're not going to take away a tax benefit that's available to everyone else. Is that yeah. one one way of expressing it? Yes, yes. And and what's interesting is if you there were a lot of opinions written. There was the main one by Justice Roberts. There were a, two concurrences. There were three dissents. Everyone wanted a piece of this to get their views out. And I think you really see three views that I think are not only uh, uh, about what the court in the future may think about re- religion and education and public life, but even the broader question of how we in general think about religion in public life and education. And so in the dissents, you really saw something like what you just said, a kind of secularizing uh, sep- a kind of separation of politics and religion, not just the institutions of church and state, which really prefers uh, a non-religious view, really prefers secularism over uh, over uh, Christianity or any other religion. Uh, what you saw in Justice Roberts was a kind of neutrality, that if government is going to offer something or do something, it's going to offer it to everyone, religious or not. And then, like I said, interestingly, Justice Thomas's opinion even says that at the state level, as long as you're not coercing or, or going too far— it's not even a bad thing for um, uh, the the state to say religion is a good thing, and we can verbally or in other modest ways say we think it's a good thing and why. So I think going forward, uh, you know, are we going to be neutral? Are we going to be antagonistic to religion? Are we going to be uh, even encouraging of it? Um, this this case interestingly laid out all three views, and I think those are the three views in front of the country as a whole. All right, and I'm I'm hearing from listeners that apparently they really like Justice Alito's concurrence, which I'll just admit I have not read. <laughs> uh, so. It laid out in particular what you were saying about the animus toward Catholics that that mm. um, that was there from the beginning in many of these. And what's interesting is, yeah, this came back to bite because a lot of the public schools were kind of de facto Protestant. And when they secularized, all of a sudden, uh, Protestants were in the same boat as Catholics. And he really lays out, he even has a cartoon uh, uh, from the 1800s depicting sort of Roman Catholics as uh, slithering snakes and alligators, I think it is, coming out of the water. Uh, uh, and, and so he details in, 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 in large fashion 
that question that that this was underlying why uh, why these uh, why these original laws that banned the giving of money to religious schools came from. Not sometimes people will give broad reasons. Oh, we don't want to give money to religious schools and have very particular, uh, uh, really bigotries. And and that was what was underlying this one. And and Alito really focuses in on that in his opinion. All right, Adam Karen and I are going to take a very brief break. When we come back, I am going to ask him um, about the Declaration of Independence and the places in which the Declaration discusses God. Uh, we're going to talk about the week that we are in and who we contemplated being when this nation was formed, who we think we are now, who we really want to be, and how we might get there. All right, yeah, we're going to do all of that in one segment. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. No Continuing my conversation with Dr. Adam Carrington. All right, Adam, it is the week of the, you know, it's the week of the 4th of July. So let's talk about the Declaration of Independence. Um, Make your observations about the Declaration of Independence, uh, particularly in relationship to God. Right. And I would encourage, as I've I've done in the past, everyone to read the Declaration of Independence as uh, a summation of what we should be celebrating or maybe at times lamenting uh, on the 4th of July. And there are four references, interestingly, to God. And I think these transcend uh, the the person that wrote them, Thomas Jefferson. It was actually approved by the whole Continental Congress. And uh, the, the, the first um, uh, speaks at the beginning of the laws of nature and nature's God. And I think if you put all these together, uh, this and the others, you really get a, an interesting view of who God is, according to the Declaration, and but also uh, what that might mean for our own lives. So the idea that there are laws of nature and nature's God, I think, really says God is a God of order, uh, that the God that, it ha- that the Declaration has in mind has created laws that we can know uh, by our natural reason and revelation, and that uh, they're things that we should seek out and uh, seek to live according to. Um, the next is the famous line that we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, mentioning life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. It's interesting that this discussion doesn't say God, but says the creator, And I think that what we can learn from this is that uh, in the act of creation, God gave human beings unalienable rights. And I think what that means is they're not given by government, they're given by God, but even deeper, how are they given in the act of creating us? And I think what that means is having this these dignities these the life liberty the pursuit of happiness is part of what it means to be human and for us to not recognize that is an affront to our creator but also a denial of our very humanity since it's in the act of creation we had them uh, the other two come at the end you have um where there's an appeal uh, after they've made their case to the supreme judge of the world Uh, God is a supreme judge, meaning that not only does God create laws according to justice, not only does he create us according to a certain idea of justice, he will judge the world rightly. We are are not left without an appeal to God himself. And then finally, they, they talk about having a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, uh, meaning that whatever Jefferson's views 
what was accepted by the whole Continental Congress doesn't seem very deistic, meaning God just puts things in motion and leaves. It really sets up a God that as judge and as uh, the divine providence of the world really is still working in the world according to how he's created, vindicating what he's created. And uh, it doesn't say this, but I think at least it hints at the idea of restoring what he's created uh, down the road. So I, I, I think, uh, you know, I think that uh, a man that was a deeply devout, like a John Witherspoon, who was president of Princeton, uh, signed on to this. And I can't help but think that that's how he was understanding it, and that this view of God is 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 one that has great ramifications for politics and even how we interact with other human beings. I'm a Witherspoon fan. I, uh, I lived in a dorm with that name. Princeton is, uh, is this week removing uh, the name of a former president from a building there um, in, in reaction and response to sort of understanding our history differently. I do think this week, Adam, is an opportunity for people to read the Declaration of Independence and consider not only the words but the worldview um, that is evidenced therein. So um, let's move forward now to present day from 1776 to 2020. Um, Contemplate with me for a moment, just the moment that we're in, uh, who we are and who we should be this July 4th. Right. And I think that is something that is, is staring us in the face more than a normal 4th of July. And I think that, um, where, where we are and where we should be, there's always a gap. Um, but I think we are more aware of that gap, uh, than, than before. And, and a thing I would point to that is also historical, but I think touches on our time is something Lincoln said about the declaration that the declaration is not a sort of haughty statement of, of, of where we are now. It is a hopeful and humble articulation of where we should be. And the idea that all men are created equal, the idea that we have a government of laws, not of a mob or not of any other man in his capricious will, uh, the idea that uh, uh, we, we don't see the color of people's skin, uh, but the content of their character, uh, the idea that we are going to help people in all sorts of situations, whether they're healthy or sick, whether they're employed or not, uh, we're seeing how much more work we have to do, uh, how far we are from that. But while that should not make us haughty, um, it sh- the, I think the Declaration helps us see that we have committed ourselves to ever getting closer to those ideals as a people and hopefully as individuals, and that that document in many ways, I think for our civil polity is a wonderful blueprint to say, how can we get better and better and better? But I'd also say, uh, you know, given given um, uh, my own beliefs and I and, and I know many of the listeners to also not deify the, the declaration and say it is a wonderful, I think, in my opinion, gift from God through men, but it is not the Bible. Uh, it will not bring about ultimate shalom. Uh, it, it, that will come with the coming of Christ. But it is a helpful uh, thing for us to to build on now, as we look to the coming of Christ in our own polity, uh, to 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 better treat people as God made them, 
and live out as God intended us to live. All right, I'm hoping that um, my brother Paul pulls that as our uh, as our highlight. I think that um, thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you for always directing us um, to the redemptive narrative. Thank you for always uh, directing our eyes and hearts in the in the right direction, even as we survey and deal with and contemplate the complexities of the days in which we live. So bringing the gospel to bear uh, on what's happening today is something you're particularly good at. So Dr. Adam Carrington, thank you so much. Uh, have a wonderful, blessed Fourth of July and a, and a great tea party. You as well. And thank you for your ministry through this program. Well, we appreciate you. We'll be right back. The role of Christ's death in achieving atonement for sin and hence reconciliation with God is central to the New Testament. That is a quote from William William Lane Craig's new book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. He goes on to say, the message of the New Testament is that God, out of his great love, has provided the means of atonement for sin through Christ's death on the cross. Christ has thus made possible the reconciliation of alienated and condemned sinners to God. You may think that the atonement and the death of Christ is a heavy lift for this hour of the day, um, but William Lane Craig and I are going to talk about the the importance of our right understanding of the death of Christ and what is achieved, which is the atonement, um, in, in order that you and I could actually intelligently walk our faith out into the world that God so loves. You know him from the Reasonable Faith website. Nearly a million people follow him there. We've got him next right here on Mornings with Carmen. God gives us more by going deeper than we ask. He not only wants your whole heart, he wants your heart whole. This is Max Lucado. Why? Well, hurt people hurt people. Think about it. Why do you fly off the handle? Why do you avoid conflict? Why do you seek to please everyone? Might your tendencies have something to do with an unhealed hurt in your heart? God wants to help you for your sake. Your family history has some sad chapters, but your history doesn't have to be your future. The generational garbage can stop here and now. You don't have to give your kids what your ancestors gave you. Talk to God about the scandals and scoundrels. Invite Him to relive the betrayal with you. The process may take a long time. It may take a lifetime difficult for certain, but let God do His work. This is Max Lucado. William Lane Craig is a professor of philosophy at the Talbot School of Theology and at Houston Baptist University uh, named one of the 50 most influential living philosophers by the best schools. I mean, I could just go on and on, but I really want to get to my conversation with him about atonement and the death of Christ. You should absolutely check out, if you're not already uh, following what is happening at Reasonable Faith, you can follow it on all of the socials or just visit the website at Reasonable Faith. Um, uh, Dr. Craig, welcome to Mornings with Carmen. Thank you. Great to be with you. So the book is um, is a heavy lift, um, maybe for drive time radio. And so I'm going to ask the question this way. What in heaven and what in the world was accomplished in the death of Christ in terms of the atonement 
of human beings? I would say that what was accomplished was that divine justice was satisfied, thereby affording us the opportunity of pardon for all of our sin. So divine justice and pardon, those sound like uh, words related to penal substitution. I'm going to throw that out there. And then I'm going to let you define that. And then I'm also going to let you sort of answer the the barking question of the day. Um, you know, well, wouldn't it be unjust of God to punish an innocent person for the sins of others? So you just roam around in all of that, because that is really, in my view, the the heart of this conversation. You're absolutely right. That is the central issue. Uh, penal substitution is the doctrine that Christ bore the suffering that we deserved as the punishment for our sins, thereby uh, freeing us from condemnation and affording us a divine pardon for our sins. And the central objection that has been raised for centuries to this classic Reformation doctrine of the atonement is that it would be unjust of God to punish someone else for my sins. You you should only punish the person who actually committed the sins, and that therefore penal substitution is impossible. Okay, so when we when we would have a conversation, let's say, about theories of the atonement, you know, or or our understanding of the atonement, my guess is there are a lot of people who have not sat down and considered that there are more understandings of the atonement than the one they hold. But the mm-hmm. one they hold may be a derivative one and not the primary biblical uh, revelation about what Jesus actually accomplished on the cross. Can you yes, suss I... out for us the difference between like the primary motif versus yes. like all of the derivative theories? Thank you. Yes, thank you. The doctrine of the atonement has been aptly compared to a multifaceted jewel. There are many facets to the doctrine. And in a well-cut gem, there is a sort of central facet that anchors the gem and uh, is reflected and refracted in all of the other facets. And I would say that the central facet of the biblical doctrine of the atonement is the notion of penal substitution, that Christ died in our place to satisfy divine justice. And then there are many other motifs that uh, surround this central facet, like the moral influence of Christ's death, Christ's victory over Satan, death and hell, um, redemption, representation, uh, and so forth. But the central facet, I would say, is this idea that Christ's death was a sacrificial offering to God for our sins, whereby he bore the suffering that we deserved. So I am talking with Dr. William Lane Craig, and we're talking today about uh, his book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. Um, Also, just want to encourage people, um, if you've never done so, to check out the website Reasonable Faith. Uh, And you can find it at reasonablefaith.org. That's actually the place, um, Dr. Craig, where I became first first familiar with you, uh, just in terms of 
of what I like to call conversational apologetics. Like, how do we actually uh, address the concerns of the days in which we live with a faith that is well-informed um, and reasonable, where we don't sound like crazy people um, out there in, <laughs> you know, in the in the thought world of the day. So, yes. um, go ahead. On the website, on the homepage, there is a series of about 13 animated videos, each only about three or five minutes long, which are tremendous tools in conversational apologetics. They address the main issues involved in giving a defense of the Christian faith, and they do so in a very entertaining and colorful way. And so I would encourage folks to avail themselves of these free animated videos, which they can download and share with a friend on their mobile device. Absolutely. Um, so everything, uh, everything on there, I mean, it, they take you from uh, is there meaning to life, um, and you're going to learn even how to say words like ontological in, fa- in, in case <laughs> you uh, never learned how to say that word before. All right, Dr. William Lane, Craig, and I are going to take a very, very brief break. When we come back, we're going to continue our conversation about his new book, Atonement, and the death of Christ. And if you've never, you know, thought long about your own understanding or theory of the atonement and that there might be others, um, this is an opportunity to engage in that conversation. We'll be right back. All right, I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. William Lane Craig. We're talking about his new book, Atonement and the Death of Christ. Uh, In addition to the book, I want to advocate that you visit reasonablefaith.org. All kinds of great resources and materials there for, uh, for the conversational apologetics in which we are each engaging every day as representatives of Christ in this world that he so loves. So, Dr. Craig, let's um, let's talk about the practical implications of the atonement. What I think about something, what I believe about what Christ has done on the cross, um, matters not just for my own personal salvation, you know, that punching my ticket to heaven business. It matters in the way I walk my faith out, in the way that I, in, in what I believe about justice, in what I advocate for in the world. So talk with me about the practical implications of rightly understanding the atonement. Well, I think one of the practical implications would be the understanding that one has been given through Christ a divine pardon of all your sin, and that therefore you are declared not guilty by God. We are like criminals condemned to death whom the governor or the president has issued a legal pardon that expunges our guilt and makes us into new people. Uh, And that enables us to live a life that is free from the past, from feelings of guilt and shame, because we are put right with God through Christ's substitutionary death. So that, that that should impact, um, if a majority of people in a culture share that understanding, um, that we have received a divine pardon in Christ, that we have been de- declared by God as not guilty, um, that our guilt has been expunged, that we no longer live under the, under condemnation, that we are new creatures. That ought to affect the way that we structure a legal system and, and how we think about people uh, who have paid their penalty um, and done their time. But I don't 
feel that way in our culture. I feel like that we are we are incredibly punitive toward people who we don't think have, you know, paid their own price. Well, I, I can't speak to that sociological question, but I can tell you this, Carmen. In the course of this study, I did extensive reading about our criminal justice system in this mm. country. And I was shocked at how close the parallels are between motifs in our criminal justice system and the biblical doctrine of the atonement. It, it is mm. really amazing. And one of the most meaningful aspects of this study for me was studying the notion of legal pardon, uh, what its conditions are, what it does, uh, does it need to be received in order to be effective? And over and over again, it is just amazing how close the parallels are between these legal notions in our criminal justice system and the biblical doctrine of the atonement. If I might just mention one of them, that's one of the most important. Please. Remember we talked a moment ago about how the main objection to the atonement is that a person's sins cannot be punished by another person, or another person punished for your sins, because only you can bear the guilt for what you've done. In fact, in our criminal justice system, it is a widely accepted and very common practice for your guilt to be imputed to a blameless third party. In our justice system, this is called vicarious liability, where someone who did not commit the crime can nevertheless be imputed your criminal wrongdoing and guilt, and therefore punished justly for that crime. And this connects very closely with the doctrine that my sins have been imputed to Christ, and therefore Christ can be justly punished by God in my place. It is uh, exactly parallel to what goes on in the criminal justice system. In the Old Testament, we have um, lots, there's lots of blood. Talk with yes. us a little bit about um, about our understanding of the blood sacrifice of Christ. And because I just feel like today, that's a hard conversation to have with people. Yeah. They don't like yeah. how bloody all of this is. Yeah. The back for understanding Christ's death, sacrifice for our sin, are these Old Testament Levitical animal sacrifices that were offered in the tabernacle and in the temple. And you're quite right. This in it, it requires us to enter into a culture and a religious system that is utterly foreign to us as Westerners. Uh, we're used to buying our meat in antiseptically wrapped packaging, in frozen bins in the grocery store. Most of us have never even seen an animal butchered, much less done it ourselves. But to understand these animal sacrifices, we need to enter into a very different culture and religious system that was highly ritualistic in its approach to God and in which they were not squeamish about blood and guts. And the book of Leviticus, which had always been boring to me in the past, really came alive to me through the study of the doctrine of the atonement. 
Because what these Levitical animal sacrifices did was two things. It would cleanse of sin or impurity. The worshiper or the offer of the sacrifice was cleansed of his sin and impurity. And secondly, it uh, propitiated God. That is to say, it allayed God's wrath. It satisfied the justice of God so that that person was no longer under the uh, wrath of God, but could be afforded God's forgiveness. So cleansing and forgiveness were available through these Levitical animal sacrifices. And these were foreshadowings, as it were, of Christ's ultimate and final sacrifice for the sins of all humanity once for all time. And so it's really important to understand this Old Testament background if we're to really understand in all its depth and richness the meaning of Christ's sacrificial death for our sins. Can I rightly understand the act of Christ upon the cross and his sacrifice for me um, if I am imagining that there is a wrathless God? Oh, boy. Well, this is very controversial among theologians. Most theologians have abandoned the notion of the wrath of God today. They, they think that God uh, doesn't need to be reconciled to humanity. Rather, humanity needs to be reconciled to God. And yet, the notion of the wrath of God is very clear in the Old Testament, and it's very clear in the book of Romans, where Paul lays out in the first three chapters our condemnation and standing under the wrath of God. And I think that this doctrine um, is important. Uh, we just shouldn't caricature it. We should not think of it that God is an angry God who is out to get us, and somehow Christ steps into the path of his anger and allays it and thereby saves it. That's not the biblical doctrine. The idea is that as a result of his holiness, we stand under the just condemnation of God. Our just desert is death as the punishment for our sins. But out of his great love for us, God himself becomes a man in the person of Christ. He takes on our humanity, and in the person of Christ, he himself bears the penalty for our sin that his own justice demanded. So the self-sacrifice of Christ, which satisfies divine justice and delays his wrath, is an act of God himself of tremendous love and self-sacrifice for the sake of fallen human beings. So, Dr. Uh, Dr. Craig, um, my husband likes to say that it is at the cross that the holiness and the love of God kiss. Yes, I yes. said that myself. I think. It, well, I was. I'm sure that we're all repeating one another at some point. So, I just want to hmm. thank you so much for um, uh, bringing you know bringing a subject matter that is a heavy theological lift, but it has very real personal implications, not only you know, for each one of us in our walk of faith, but for us as a people, as we consider our justice system, as we consider um, our own approach uh, in, a, in the culture um, to the challenges that we face this day. The atonement matters, 
at Calvary. At Calvary, it matters what happened there, but it matters today um, because I'm a person who is then walking uh, walking that faith out as a new creation, not under guilt, but under grace. Yeah. And so, yeah. you know, thank you so very much. My pleasure to be with you this morning. Great to be with you. What a pleasure. What a pleasure. That's Dr. William Lane Craig. The book is Atonement and the Death of Christ. You can find him online at reasonablefaith.org. All right. We are almost out of time today. What a joy um, to be with you um, on this first day of July. Um, now, for some of us, uh, we, we made New Year's resolutions at the beginning of uh, 2020. Um, it could be that you need to tee those up again today. You could run on a fiscal year calendar and you could just say to yourself, all right, today's going to be my New Year's Day. Um, maybe it's time to reset your Bible reading. Maybe it's time to reset your commitment to daily prayer. Maybe there's a particular spiritual discipline um, where you need to be walking your faith out uh, in wisdom. Maybe you need to take an actual walk. All those things. All right. Have a great day. God bless. Well, that brings our time to a close this morning here. And uh, three days is so enjoyable again to be with you, all the listeners here. Oh, as in the host chair. you back in the chair. Oh, you know, it just, it's, uh, you know, it's never easy when the alarm goes off. I know you're up far earlier than me uh, in this mornings, but it is always delightful to just be here with you, be with the rest of the community like this. And you again, mean you, you don't like getting at ze- getting up at zero dark 30? <laughs> zero dark 30 is a little aggressive when I got five kids at home <laughs> uh, as well. And let's just say that I'm not as disciplined as maybe I need to be when it comes to the evening time. And maybe we're watching something together as a family. Family and Maybe. you know, yeah, something along those lines. But it is worth it, and it is worth being uh, again here with you and with all the listeners. And there, there's just something about meeting together, right? That that beautiful passage from Hebrews 10 about let's not give up the habit of meeting together, uh, and all the more as we see the day approaches. This is one great way in the midst of all of our isolation and and in the troubling events of the world that for two hours every morning like this in Faith Radio we can come together and and remind ourselves of who we are, remind ourselves of whose we are, and remind ourselves most importantly that regardless of what's going on in the kingdoms of this world and sometimes it's great and sometimes it's really difficult like it is today there is again a government that rests upon the shoulders of the one who came and broke open that tomb and in his beautiful kingdom there is always hope and there is always future and even if we die yet we shall live and so live with that hope and shine his beautiful light in the world again today we'll catch you soon everybody thanks for listening to this podcast of mornings with carmen laburge from faith radio If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.